it's so good to see so many of you tonight. And um, looking at the order of service, I was actually sitting wondering how many times you might have seen the same psalms, or the same songs, the same hymns, the same texts um, preached or read. Oh. And when I was thinking of an introduction for the sermon, I was actually reminded of a, a quote that many of you might have heard Again, multiple times, and uh, it's a very common one. Um, and this old wisdom basically says, uh, preachers should have the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other hand. Now, I, I don't claim to be very up-to-date with everything that's going on in the world um, at the moment, and, you know, there's this debate coming up, this person says something about the other person, or but most of it just comes up and goes away and none, I'm none the wiser. But occasionally there will be an event um, that comes up and it sort of filters through all the noise. And I'll end up reading an article or two about it. And if I'm to resume, uh, to, uh, to, to make a, a to, to boil down everything that I, you hear about in the news that's been happening in the past few years, most of the, the stories or the articles could be sort of reduced to one word, and that is protest, and I think you would agree. Think of the situation in Sri Lanka, where the president, presidential palette was invaded, and the president had to actually flee the country and resign his position. And, you know, whether it's in the Netherlands, the US, the UK, people are always protesting against this ruler, against this law, some rule that comes up or some some decision that's being made and people just, there are in the, in the roads and protesting. And it, it then dawned on me that there's nothing new under the sun. And the, the reality is that people have been protesting against the leaders, against the rules, long before I was born. The Bible tells us that people don't just protest against certain leaders at certain times in certain places, but all people protest or rebel against God. Now, as we turn to look at Psalm 2, we're going to learn that unlike our human leaders who abdicate their positions fairly easily, God will not be overthrown. And in spite of worldwide rebellion against him, he will carry out his eternal plan and establish Christ as the Lord who rules as King and as Savior. And so these are our two main points tonight. The Lord rules as King and the Lord rules as Savior. And before we actually get into the text, I just want to, just by way of introduction, quickly go through some key points about the Psalms. As Andy mentioned, Psalm 1 stands together with Psalm 2. Uh, and they act sort of as an, an introduction to the whole book of Psalms. Now you see an evidence of this um, at the beginning of Psalm 1, where it says, blessed, are all, uh, blessed is the man, and then continues to, through the psalm. And then at the end of Psalm 2, you have the, the, like sort of the other bookend of these two psalms. And it says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, it's believed that the Psalm 2 was written by David, and it's actually New Testament authors that tells, t- tell us this. And, for example, in Acts 13, um, the author quotes Psalm 2 
and talks about it in relation to David, but also in relation to Jesus. Which means this is a messianic song or prophetic song. Which is to say that, one, it describes real events that actually happened in the time of David and applied to David in particular, but it also has a future fulfillment in Christ. Now, with respect to David and his time, this psalm would have been read out and declared as praise to the king. So, at the enthronement of the king or when a certain like main event or important event in the life of the king would happen, like going into battle, this psalm would be declared over him. And as we turn to look at Psalm 2 in more detail, we will see how it's fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. First then, the Lord rules as king. Verse 1 to to 3. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now here the psalmist is actually telling us two things. One, he's pointing out to a reality. He's not merely saying, uh, he's not merely pointing to an idea of a, an idea of a, a potential rebellion. No, he's, he's saying, no, this is happening now. This is what the kings of the earth are doing now. They're saying this now against the Lord. And in asking the rhetorical question in, in verse 1, He's actually showing us his reaction to this reality. He's thinking, this is illogical. He's, you know, he's looking at the newspaper and he's saying, well, what are these people doing? Their rebellion is, is pointless. And then he continues in verse 4 to show us why. Why he thinks this. And he says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The NIV puts it, the, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Verse 5, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God sits on his throne, unfazed by this rebellion, and he carries out his plan. Now, notice the contrast between the nations and God. First, look at the difference in numbers. He says it's the nations that rage. It's not just one nation or one king. It's the kings of the earth who rebel against God. And it's not just like a a small chief or village chief that kind of like an outlier rebels against God. No, this is a global movement against God and his anointed. But second, notice the difference in power. These kings gather together in all their strength. They plot and plan how to usurp the Lord. Think of great armies, soldiers with you know, tactics and weapons. But what does God do? He doesn't even stand up and the mere sound of his voice is enough to terrify these kings in all their supposed might. God carries out his plan uninterrupted by the protests of tiny kings who think they have a say in how God rules his kingdom and his creation. And what is God's plan? Verse 6, as for me, I have set my kingdom Zion, my holy hill. His plan is for his anointed, his king, to rule. Now, it was common belief in David's day, not just in Israel, but uh, in the surrounding nations as well, that the, the king of that nation was the, 
the son of the god of that nation. In polytheistic societies, for example, it would have been the most powerful god. So think of Egypt, Pharaoh was, a son, was considered the son of the sun god Ra. Hence, to, to go to war against the king of a nation actually meant to go to war against its god. Now, David was a king of a relatively small nation. He himself didn't come from a prominent family. And you remember, he was a shepherd. He hadn't been in the army at the time when he was anointed king by Samuel. And it's easy to see why these, these nations, these kings, would try and wage war against him. By the day's standard, David wasn't a formidable enemy. Some suggest that these threats didn't just come from the outside. Um, for example, you see some of David's closest friends and even his family became his enemies. And this is because they didn't consider that behind David stood the Almighty God and the only true God. Now they thought that David's God was like their gods, only as powerful as they were, or as mighty as they were. So the reason they rebelled was actually ignorance. And isn't that the case today? You hear people say, God doesn't really exist. It's just a man-made figure. These rules, these laws, this morality, these standards that are imposed on me need to be done away with. The more tolerant people would say something like, oh, it's, you know, it's very nice you believe in God. You have your Bible, fine, keep it to yourself, keep it in the church. I don't believe in that God, so it doesn't apply to me. Now, we read Psalm 1, and it presents us with two ways in life. The way of righteousness, the way of wickedness. And just last Sunday, we, we learned about the problem of deception. And uh, one, of the way, one of the ways the world is deceived... This is a danger for Christians, Christians as well. One of the ways we are deceived, or even deceive yourself, is to think that God rules only over those who are on the path of righteousness. And the way people, and sometimes even Christians, think of God, is like a security guard who monitors his compound with CCTV, and he's only concerned about this area, this property. So as soon as you step off into the shadows or behind the corner, you're no longer concerned about him. And he's no longer concerned about you. And sometimes we think God sees us only while we're at church or around other Christians. Now my question is, are there any loopholes in our theology? Does our understanding of God allow for such areas in our life? To put it positively, trust God with every single aspect of your life. What do you say now? Leave God out of this one. This one's on me. I've got to deal with this one. I have to protect my own kingdom because maybe God didn't think of this one. Maybe his plan didn't include this bit. But we are to trust God in every aspect of our life. And do not mistake our perception with reality. And the reality is that God promises, God's promises will be fulfilled and his decrees will come to pass and it is in God's word that we find his promises. So we are to immerse ourselves in his word, reading it daily and hearing it preached. And it's here 
that we see the infinite grace of God. Because God not only declared the Lord to rule as king, but also as saviour. Look at verse 7. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now remember I said this is a messianic psalm. And as you may know, Messiah essentially means anointed. Later in the Greek, it will be translated as Christos, where you get the English for Christ. And it's this anointed one that, the God, that God the Father sets as king on Zion. And here in, in verse 7, it's him that speaks and tells of the decree of the Lord. Now, when God the Father says, you are my son, today I have begotten you, he's not referring to some sort of offspring generation. He's, he's talking about the Father's declaration of the son's kingship. Just as the newly enthroned king was considered the son of God, begotten at the time of the coronation, Christ was always the son of, of God from eternity to eternity. But it was made apparent to people when he declared this. And how did God declare this? Well, it was through Christ's resurrection. Remember, Peter preaches in Acts 2, and he says of Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God with mighty works was delivered up to be crucified and killed according to God's plan. And then he goes on to say, this Jesus was raised up and exalted at the right hand of God. In other words, he was enthroned at the right hand of God. It is Christ that inherits the nations, verse 8. It's Christ who rules them with a rod of iron, verse 9. Now, from verse 10, the speaker changes again. And this time it's the psalmist who speaks. And he's addressing the nations. He's addressing the kings. And he says... In light of this reality which I just presented to you, this image I showed you of, of God in all his might, sitting in heavens, ruling his creation, and this intimate covenant between the Father and the Son, by which he declares him king over the nations, in light of this, he warned. He will do exactly what he said he will, whether you rebel against him or submit to him. And in verse 11 and 12, he goes on to say, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. This is an image that people of the time would have been used to. When the king conquered a certain land, the, the defeated king will kiss his conqueror's feet as a sign of submission. And in many cases, the defeated, that defeated life would be spared at the mercy of his conqueror. The alternative would have been certain death. Now, it's first in this warning that we see the grace of God shown. God does not owe anyone anything. He could manifest his wrath with with no warning. And he would be just to do so. Because he would simply pay every rebellious person what they deserve. But the Father poured out poured out his wrath on the Lord Jesus. And he was the only one who could bear it at the cross. Jesus gloriously rose again from the dead, earning the nations as an inheritance 
and is now calling them to, to him, to take refuge in him. He promises that in him you will find true blessedness. There will be true freedom. Now, notice it doesn't say bring your money. It doesn't say bring your good deeds. All we need to do is submit. You don't need to bring anything because you have nothing. Before the sovereign Lord, the creator who literally owns you, you cannot bring anything. He is the one that extends his invitation to take refuge in him. And he is the one that promises blessings forevermore and he will surely fulfill it. Blessed are all who take refuge in him.